How do children develop social skills and how best can parents support this? Wellington speech and language therapist Christian Wright has some strategies. Kia ora, Christian. Welcome as always. What age are you talking about here? Um, well, I thought today we could focus on preschoolers just to keep it simpler for me. Um, and then if we needed to next time, talk about the school age population. But <clears throat> um, So yes, you're right. Essentially, social skills, well, they're actually a part of a child's communication development, which is one of the reasons why speech therapists work with it a lot. Um, it's often an area of work for children who maybe have a diagnosed condition like autism, Down syndrome, ADHD. But equally, there are some children who, for whatever reasons, their developmental trajectory has been such that social skills are difficult and they're needing extra support. Um, it's a really important area because social sk- so your, your proficiency with your social skills, which develops in your preschool years through interaction with humans, um, not screens, um, is something that goes on to mean that you learn how to become a good conversationalist, have positive relationships with people, um, learning to cooperate, share, play, um, as a good play partner. So it's all those kinds of pro-social skills that set you up, hopefully, to have better mental health and a better sense of community around you in the future. How does it typically manifest and develop literally things like sharing toys taking turns is often the setting for it right that's right i mean my wife and i um had a baby about uh four months i think he's coming up to four months she'll slap me over the hand for that because i can't quite remember but anyway we've got a lot of babies to be fair (laughs) got a lot of children (laughs) but but, um just watching and interacting with our little boy jesse um has been it's such good pd and it just reminds me again so it all begins a lot with eye contact. Um, so looking and taking turns with sound making. So some of the very, very early skills that we, we talk about are taking turns, eye contact, joint attention. And I suppose what I want to skip a little bit ahead to is the joint attention part because often that's the area when that breaks down that um, children really struggle with their learning. Uh, joint attention is the gateway to learning. So what we mean by joint attention well, the absence of it would be a child who focuses on the object but doesn't really pay much attention to the person, or vice versa. So, so they're not including the other person in the experience. Yeah, they feel like they're in their own bubble and you're trying to get into it. And there's a whole host of reasons why that can be, which we won't really necessarily go into today, but the important point there is that um, in, when you're working with children around joint attention, you're trying to get them to shift their gaze, their attention from the object to the person to the object to the person to build that reciprocity that enables you to have um, a shared focus that you can teach to. So I spend a lot of time developing joint attention. Where does it? Where would it normally develop and would it normally develop naturally? Mm-hmm. At what age would you normally say, hey, look at this or, or, yep. or be aware of the other? Um, anywhere from 6 to 12 months. Uh-huh. Um, that's that sort of window. It's quite an early developing uh-huh. skill. And that would happen because to start with, it would start with the person. So the baby's looking at the person, the person's making noises and they wait and then the baby's still looking and then they have a turn. Um, and then you might bring an object into it. But what you'll find in the early stages, they'll just focus on the object and they're not really paying attention to you. But naturally what happens is they begin to look back at you to see what you're doing uh-huh. in response to the object. So you, you think it's funny and you're smiling. If it's they a look rattle at it. or something. Yeah. yeah. 
And then they smile. And is this often parental? When does it begin? When do they begin to expand their universe beyond their parent or caregiver and, and you know, bring others into it? Um, anywhere, yeah, yeah, around about the same age because they start to, um, it's all interconnected because they grow more confident with uh-huh. faces that are not family faces. Mm-hmm. So, so you see things like pointing, look, and, and this kind of thing. That's yeah. what comes from joint attention. Mm-hmm. That's exactly mm-hmm. right. So um, there is a process. I use a process developed by a speech therapist, um, Carrie Clark. She probably didn't develop it. She's an American therapist. She's got a great website, speechandlanguagekids.com, um, and so listeners can go there and find out more. But if we walked through the process, how I generally do it is the first thing with joint attention when it's absent. or So I'm talking about children who are, say, one and a half, and we would describe them as children who have a real own agenda. Their play is just about them and the object, and they seem to ignore people. Um, so what I'll do often in that situation is begin by just getting down to their level and imitating what they're doing and making my imitation noisy and interesting so that every now and then they might look up and reference me, just have a look at me to see what I'm doing with the toy. That's the same as what they're doing. And humans universally seem to love being mirrored. It's a it's a rapport-building skill. Um, so adults are the same. And um, when we mirror the way other people, so the, the, the words they use, the body language that they adopt, they seem to find a sense of empathy or rapport building with that person, which can be quite manipulative too. You can manipulate that. But I do that all the time, as my wife has said to me in the past, your job is really child manipulation. That's what you're doing with a benefit. Parenting. It actually is parenting. (laughs) And teaching. With good intent. (laughs) With good intent, yeah, for the benefit of them. Altruistic manipulation. But... um, so I'm, I'm imitating to draw them into the interaction. Then what I do is I'll find a toy that's really motivating for the child and I will move away from them and play with the toy to see if I can draw their attention. And when they come over close to me, I'll say things like, oh, you see my whatever it is, ball or my bubbles. Um, and when the child comes near me and shows an interest, I'll give them a turn. And then I'll quickly take it back again. So they kind of have to earn the turns the wrong way to put it. But they're connecting you to their chance to do something. Yeah. Okay. That's exactly it. Mm. And because I'm trying to break down the barriers of them being own agenda and playing in their bubble Mm. to expand it to begin to include someone else. But often that early expansion, there has to be something in it for them. They don't do it just to be pro-social. Sometimes they do it to meet a need. Right. Let's talk about how that evolves then from, first of all, just even being aware of another person to then needing the skills like sharing or taking a turn or waiting. Mm-hmm. Um, all children need to develop these social skills. But again, for some children, can it can it be harder um, to see this develop? Do you need to do things to help yeah. them develop a critical social skill? That's exactly right, and you do. Um, Sadly, for some children, for reasons that we don't always know, um, their developmental schedule's gone awry. So, for example, um, one of my own children who has ADHD, and um, we've had to work quite hard with him on impulse control. So impulse control is part of what they call your executive function. There are a host of skills in your frontal lobe that enable you to organise yourself, plan, control impulses, develop your attentional system. And um, these are things that we work on because if in the absence of impulse control, you can get yourself into quite a lot of trouble. You're not a very fun play partner, which brings us to waiting. Um, so waiting is important because waiting usually enables sharing. 
So you have to have joint attention, and if listeners want to read more about what I was talking about, I'll leave a link to the website, and they can read that process for themselves. Waiting is a common um, issue in many kids, particularly with impulse control issues, Um, and I often have to work on it. These are the kinds of kids who often interrupt the conversation all the time. When you're unpacking something, they're grabbing because they can't wait for it to be unpacked. They tend to push in or um, they tantrum when their needs are not being met instantly. And it's really draining to parent. Um, You feel like your whole life is always about meeting their need, um, which it is for our children, but this is on another level. So um, part of the problem here around impulse control is we as parents say, oh, I'll do it in five minutes, and then we spend 15 minutes. So we're not very consistent ourselves. And when children have impulse control issues and they're preschoolers, time is so abstract, let alone the fact that they can't even wait 10 seconds. So the very first thing I'll always do is introduce a visual strategy to enable the child to begin to conceptualize the weight, and I'll start with a really small weight. So I will use a timer. There's great visual timers you can download. One that listeners can download is the Mouse Timer app. It's free, and it's this tiny little mouse that munches on apples. And so you can set it to 10, 20, 30, a minute. Um, And he munches his way through the apples. And I'll put it there sometimes, like I did for one of my own children, where he would want to go outside and play on his bike. So I would naturally, in the course of our routines, introduce wait time. Oh, we'll do that in 20 seconds. And he'd be like, now, and I'd say, well, look, let's have a look. Look at the mouse. Put the mouse in front of him. It gives him a concept of time, mm-hmm. and also it's giving him something to do. But he's he is also seeing that time diminish a bit like an hourglass, isn't he? He is. Hmm. And he's practicing the idea of um, he's suppressing uh, his desire to do anything else. He is fe- effectively being entertained for a second by watching the mouse. But it is a bit boring after a while. It's very repetitive. And it works a treat. Um, Not for every child, but many children I've done it with. It works really, really well. Another one is that I'll explain to children what we're going... As they develop this idea of waiting, we'll talk about first, then. So first, we'll tidy this up, then we'll play on the bike. So And then I will start engaging them in tidying up. And depending on the child's age, you always want to break a skill down into something that's manageable like I don't when all the blocks are over the floor say to them you need to tidy all of this then we'll go on the bike that's just going to break them that's um, Russian prison sort of stuff Um, you've got to try and break it down into a smaller task so you start doing it and you give them 10 blocks to put in the bag whilst you're tidying and then you go out to go on the bike so it's starting to cross over from waiting into delayed gratification um, self-control and many listeners will remember from the Dunedin study what was one of the most important skills for people to have successful lives? Self-control. Um, so inhibiting your desire to just rush out and grab or do. Um, and this is one of the ways that begins. So it can be trained. It's, it's perhaps more instinctive or just more, it might be personality related. Who yes. knows? It's, as you say, development stage and that varies between children. Uh, but it is a learned skill and it can be taught as a skill. Yeah, it can be. And I think it takes as much self-control for us to teach it. It's really frustrating to teach, but um, it can be very frustrating to teach. But it's worth it because these are some critical skills. The children who have trouble with joint attention, have trouble waiting, don't tend to take turns very well. 
um, and taking turns and sharing our interlinked skills. And it tends to be that um, they aren't very good play partners at kindy or Montessori or Which is the foundation are. of your independent relationship relationship forming, right? Okay. Um, this is a slightly different tack. This question has come in. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question, um, but it takes a slightly different tack from where we've been, which is literally exercising the muscle over very basic pro-social behaviours. But let me put it to you. My four-year-old daughter has a very reserved, quiet, introverted temperament and in social settings will often freeze up when another child talks to her directly. She attends preschool and has a younger sibling but will always gravitate towards spending time and having conversations with adults. How can we encourage more peer interactions for her? Yeah, that's a tricky one and that sounds like very much that there's, as you talked about before, the spread of personalities. Um, One of my own lovely children is very much like that. So I would say the very first thing which this parent will have already discovered, you can't force it. If you force it, you will generate a freeze response. That's what you'll get. And um, in some situations, and I'm not... But I've seen those children go on to become selectively mute in some contexts. They almost develop a phobic response to being... uh, to the communication pressure that goes on, and they just choose to be silent. Well their brain causes them to be silent. They have a phobic response to it. So the very first thing I usually do in these situations is very much low and slow. I take all the pressure off the idea of questioning and I just parallel play with them. So um, this is difficult because they're talking about how she likes adults but she finds peers more challenging. But what you would want to try and do is create a play environment where they're playing near each other but there isn't this pressure to have to be cooperative in the it's play. It's a bit like that awareness with. you're developing in the first instance right back at the beginning in our yes, earlier example. So at first be in the same space. That's right. And you want creating to. something that hopefully will become an attention. That's right. And then what you do from there is I'll move into shared materials. I'll put the materials between them. So, for example, I'm just going to, this might not be applicable, but it's a colouring task. Instead of them having their own felts, the felts are in the middle and they're reaching out and getting each of the felts. That's that's an interaction. Correct. Even if it's not directly person to person, they're in the same space doing the same thing. And then as a parent, I'm alongside and I start commenting and modelling. I'm not not asking questions, I'm just saying I'm going to make his head red. And generally the peer will start talking as well. But again, they're talking about their own picture and they're not forcing the child to talk. And then as time goes on, what I would then start to do is play games with them where there's a bit more structured turn-taking, but there isn't a focus on talking still. So block stacking, and we all get a turn to put a block on, and we're building the blocks, but we're doing it cooperatively, and then it falls down, and then we laugh, and we enjoy the interaction. What I'm hoping to generate there is desensitise the child to the peer's presence. Number two, that they begin to laugh or use their voice in a non-word way, non-communicative way, but they're beginning to access their voice. And then over time, because they've been playing with this peer and they don't perceive them to be a pressure or a threat, build the interaction up to the point that we start to talk or share. And that last step is, I'll make the last step very structured, like they're taking turns pushing on a swing. So one of you has to push, the other one is obviously sitting. Or um, with parental observation, um, like using a juicer. So one of you is going to push the button, one of you is going to drop the fruit in, so you've got this shared outcome that you're both going to drink the smoothie at the end. But it's this idea that um, you begin to talk from that commenting, you begin to talk together about what you're doing.
So you're slowly building it into a shared experience. Hmm. This question might be too big. We might need to do it next time we have you. Unless you have immediate advice you can help this parent with. How can I discourage my toddler from hitting me, his dad, and other children? He is two. Mm. There, you want to think about the ABCs of behaviour. So antecedent behaviour consequence. What that means, antecedent is essentially the event that triggers the behaviour. So it's a big part of untangling behaviour is understanding the function or answering the question of why. So why is this child choosing to hit what is going on is it a sharing issue um, is it a response or a, um, uh, an anxiety issue is it an attention getting um, purpose so by trying to decide what the trigger or the purpose of the behavior might be then we lead ourselves to how we respond so the idea being here that um, the triggering event is about trying to get something in a sense that um, the behavior is what they do to get it and the consequence is how the environment responds how the adults respond our responses either reinforce or extinguish the behavior so um, children are either are always trying to to get or avoid that's what most behavior centers around and how we respond strengthens or diminishes it so I can't answer it only because you would need to go into what's, what's happening. Yeah. exploring it in uh-huh. detail with uh-huh. someone. Yeah. Thank you very much, Christian Wright.